If you would please open your Bible to Luke chapter 6. This morning we're completing the sermon on the level place from Luke 6, and we'll be looking at verses 29 through the end. And as we begin, I want you to think about what is required in being a wise builder. One of the things that you need as a builder is a long time horizon. If you've ever been involved in a building project, you know that just, just to get the thing completed, you know, it takes many months from initial planning to raising the money to drafting up the plans to getting permits and all the other steps between the idea and seeing the building on the ground. But of course, buildings aren't meant to be used for just a moment, right? We, we hope that buildings last for maybe generations, right? If we have a home that's 20 or 30 years old in Houston, you start to get worried about, well, is the foundation going to hold up, you know, and you know you have to start replacing roofs and air conditioners. There are lots of things in buildings that wear out, but we hope at least that the kind of bones of the thing will last for a long time. So you not only need the time horizon just to get the thing completed, you need the time horizon for maybe 100 years from now. Will this building still be here or will it have molded into dust as so many buildings in Houston do? This morning, Jesus is going to talk to us about what it means to be a wise builder. And I think that he wants us also to have that long time horizon. But not the time horizon of a few months, not even a a generation or a hundred years, but an eternal time horizon. How do we build our lives in such a way that they can withstand death and judgment? That's the question Jesus wants us to wrestle with, or one of them, as we approach this text this morning. As we dig into the text, we should remember who Jesus is speaking to when he's delivering this message that Luke records. Remember, a large crowd has gathered around him as he comes down from the mountain. That includes the 12 apostles that he's just called earlier in this chapter. Luke says many disciples are there. And also just a great multitude who've come, Luke says, to, be, to hear and be healed by Jesus. And so as we read Jesus' teaching, it becomes clear that he knows that many people in this crowd are not yet committed followers of Jesus. So he started off the sermon by saying that if, they, if you really follow Jesus, you're going to be persecuted. He's trying to prepare them for the trouble that's to come. It's clear there are great blessings from following Jesus, but these blessings are not the tangible blessings that we might enjoy here and now. Here and now, disciples can expect hatred from the world and and slander. They can expect the same kind of oppression and persecution that Jesus himself received. So he says that his disciples are blessed when they're hated for Jesus' sake. And then in the passage we looked at last week, Jesus called his disciples to a radical kind of love. He said that the natural kind of love that sinners have, that kind of reciprocal tit-for-tat love, that's no credit to a disciple of Jesus. Instead, he called disciples to love their enemies and to do good to those who persecute them. It's not hard to imagine that many of these people who've gathered around Jesus, that they might be turned off by what Jesus has to say. Imagine if someone's just come out to see some amazing healings or just to hear something interesting, and then they hear Jesus talking about persecution and sacrificial love. 
Jesus clearly is not in the, in the marketing business, right? He's not making a smooth sales pitch here. His goal is to define discipleship, followership, we might say. He's clarifying what it means to truly follow him. And in the final part of the sermon, he, he drives the point home. His teaching here raises some crucial questions for everybody in this crowd. What kind of teacher will you follow? And are the teachers you're following, are they leading you to destruction or to life? And what about the influence you're having on others? Are you like a blind guide or are you a humble servant? And what about your true character? What kind of fruit is your life producing? Is the fruit of your life consistent with allegiance to Christ? Or are you a hypocrite? This morning we're going to meditate on Jesus' questions. And we should consider this, these questions because most of us in this room think of ourselves as disciples of Jesus. And so these questions from Jesus are a time to recalibrate what we believe a follower of Jesus is like with what Jesus says it's like. So it's a good thing for Christians to pay attention to the questions Jesus raises here. But if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, it's good that you're here too. And that's because, as we said, when Jesus is giving these words the first time, there were, there were unbelievers there. There were those who were just kind of interested observers. And so you can learn, too, what it means to truly be a disciple of Jesus. Because the truth is that you are a disciple of somebody. You may not call yourself that, although it's, it's funny that our social media apps use the word followers, right? You're following people. But there are friends at school or YouTubers or podcasters or your favorite radio preacher or your favorite news anchor. All these people are influencing you. You're following somebody. And we should ask, where are those people that we're following? Where are they leading us? So this morning we're going to walk through the passage and look at five questions that Jesus' teaching raises for us. Here they are. What kind of teacher should we follow? What kind of teacher are you? How is your heart? Are you a hypocrite? And will your life withstand the storm? Those are the five questions we'll look at this morning. What kind of teacher should we follow? What kind of teacher are you? How is your heart? Are you a hypocrite? And will your life withstand the storm? We see these first two questions raised in verses 39 through 42 of Luke chapter 6. So let's read those verses together. Listen to God's word beginning at Luke 6, 39. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take, that, take out the speck that is in your own eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take, the speck that is, to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. This is God's word. Thanks be God. So the first question we're asking from these verses is, what kind of teacher should we follow? 
Now, before we answer that question, we should just note what, it does, what does it mean to say teacher in this context? The way Jesus talks here, we see he talks about guides leading one another. He talks about um, one brother helping another brother with a problem and, and not doing it well, right? Um, so it seems that Jesus is using uh, words to describe a, a wide range of kinds of influence. He, he certainly is including himself as someone who, who teaches others as a guide, but he also includes maybe the, the one-on-one relationships we might have in the church. So by teacher, I want us to, to interpret that term in the, in the broadest possible way. So kids, your parents are your teachers. Uh, your church members, we have, the, we have teachers all around us, people to learn from and be encouraged by or to be held accountable by. We have, again, teachers that we talked about earlier all over the place. There are the teachers in your schools. There's the, the teachers that show up on your TV. So we're looking at this broad definition of teacher, anyone who guides or teaches someone else. What kind of teacher should we be looking for? As we read these verses, we see right off the bat a few things Jesus wants us to know about teachers. First, that following a blind teacher is a bad idea, right? It'll lead you to destruction. Jesus uses that imagery of a pit, right? And that's a a common image in scripture to symbolize destruction. That's where blind guides lead you. Then Jesus tells us that a student, when he becomes fully trained, will be like his teacher. So this can be either good or bad, right? If you have a good teacher and he fully trains you, you'll benefit from all his knowledge and wisdom and experience. But if your teacher is himself a fool and he's mistaken, you'll just inherit his mistakes, right? And and probably make them worse. Being fully trained by a foolish teacher just makes you fully foolish. And then finally, Jesus, in the parable about the speck in the log, he, he zeroes in on a particular kind of blindness. We might call it the blindness of pride. A proud teacher who can't acknowledge their own failures, a, a teacher who neglects repentance, they're useless at helping others. So with that in mind, let's jump into considering what kind of teacher we should follow. The answers are pretty obvious, but they're worth meditating on. And the short answer of these words is that we don't want a blind teacher. We want a teacher who has had his or her eyes opened. We can talk about this opening of the eyes in several ways. So first, consider the kind of spiritual blindness that Jesus says in Luke that he came to heal. Remember back to when Jesus was speaking in Nazareth. And he opened up the scroll of Isaiah to Isaiah 61. And he said that Jesus had come to proclaim sight to the blind, the recovering of sight to the blind. And in the context we talked about, he wasn't primarily talking about the recovery of physical sight, although he does do that. But he was talking about the opening of of eyes for those who've had their eyesight blinded by sin. The psalmist says that false gods have eyes but do not see, in Psalm 135. And then he goes on to say, those who make idols become like them, so do all who trust in them. So those who trust in idols become blind like idols. They become spiritually incapable of understanding. Spiritual blindness is a problem that describes all of us before we were saved by Christ. And so to have your eyes opened by Jesus means that you can see clearly both your sin and you can see Christ. 
of part of the reason for having John read for us from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. One of the gifts of salvation is our eyes to see these, these truths that, that only God can help you see. To be able to see Jesus and his glory and to be saved by him. And so we should only follow teachers who know and believe the gospel. We should seek to be fully trained by those who have been transformed by grace. Now this does not mean that we have nothing to learn from unbelievers. Their spiritual blindness doesn't mean that everything that they know is wrong. But when it comes to life's ultimate questions, questions of how to be saved and how to know God, how to walk in a way that pleases God, those without Christ are like blind guides leading people to destruction. And that's true whether we're talking about someone like Jordan Peterson or Oprah Winfrey or whichever popular guru that you might hear about. They may entertain you. They might have some insight that you can learn from, but they cannot finally lead you to life. If you fully devote yourself to those kinds of teachers, they will lead you to destruction. We should seek teachers who've had their eyes opened by Jesus, who've been transformed by his grace. Another way to think about the, the kind of seeing teachers that we want to follow is that they should be people who are formed by Christ's own words. This will become clear at the end of our passage, but we can cheat a little bit and apply the imagery of verses 47 through 49, that image of the, the wise man who builds his house upon the rock is the one who hears and obeys Christ's words. We want to follow those kinds of teachers, the teachers who have built their lives on Christ, who hear God's word through Christ and obey him. Those who hear Christ's words and those who do Christ's words. Now, it, it takes some personal knowledge of someone to see, are they hearing and obeying Christ's words? So this, this is a, another good reason why Paul's instruction is right on the mark when he says that an elder shouldn't be a recent convert. Be someone who's given a track record of hearing and obeying Christ's words. We should look for those kinds of teachers who have their eyes open like that, who know where to find the truth and are seeking to apply the truth to their lives. So we want teachers who have both been transformed by grace, they've come to true saving knowledge of Christ, and their lives give obedience to Christ. Those are the kinds of teachers we should follow. And finally, there's another kind of eyesight that Jesus describes. Trustworthy teachers are willing to see their own faults, right? This is the point of that image of the, the man who takes the, the log out of his own eye before he tries to help you with the speck that is in your eye. We want to follow teachers that are not hypocrites. They are willing to admit their failures. They're humble. When they sin against someone, they confess that sin. When they've made a mistake, they correct the mistake. They're repentant before God and, and before others. We should beware of any teacher who's never wrong and can't admit that they could be wrong. An unrepentant teacher is giving evidence of their own spiritual blindness. Right? Repentance is a work of God's grace. And so unrepentance is evidence that grace is lacking. 
An unrepentant person has not truly grappled with God's word. So we should want to follow teachers who can see their own faults and who repent of them. But again, we have to admit that it's not easy to see all these things, these evidences of a transformed life from a distance. Right? You really can't see these things through someone's posts on social media or, or their podcast feed. Whether or not a person has a transformed life is most easily seen by getting to know them in a personal way, in a relationship. We live at a time when we have access to many teachers, right, through books and videos and other media, and many of us have been blessed by that, right? And you might have grown up listening to R.C. Sproul on the radio, or you might have other, other places where you find good teaching that's encouraged you. I benefit from this kind of teaching. But with most of those teachers, we do have to admit that we really can't see their lives and what they're like. We shouldn't assume the worst about them, but neither can we vouch for their godliness. So this should lead us to prefer learning from teachers that we can know personally, that we can observe their life, that we can tell this person has been transformed by God's grace, that they're obeying Christ, that they're willing to admit their faults, they're humble and repentant. This can guard us from placing too much trust in others. This can guard us from when that well-known preacher far away has a great fall. This isn't foolproof, but it gives us a way of wisdom to follow. So what kind of teachers should we follow? We should follow teachers that have their eyes opened in all of these ways, whose eyes have been opened by the grace of God and whose eyes are fixed on God's teaching through Jesus Christ. The second question is closely related. What kind of teacher are you? Now, I don't think many of us want to think of ourselves as teachers. So let's just set that title aside, but, but consider Jesus' words in verse 41. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? And then he concludes with the, il the illustration by saying, first take out the log of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Notice that Jesus assumes that all of his disciples will have the kind of relationships in which they will see specks in each other's eyes and that they will help try to help each other see more clearly. It's a fundamental part of what it means to follow Jesus, that we try to help each other grow as followers of Christ. Now, he, he manifests this assumption while he's correcting a wrong way of approaching other people's faults, right? So he, he's, he's identifying a problem, you know, that someone would try to correct while having this huge blind spot. But notice, even though he identifies the problem, he doesn't say, you know, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? Just mind your own business and leave other people alone and don't meddle in their lives. I think that's the temptation we have, right? We don't want to meddle. We don't want to get involved in a messy conflict. We don't want to have to take on someone else's problems. But Jesus implies here that the speck in our brother's eye is our business, in a sense. It's something we should care about. And that we should use wisdom to know how to, how to address those things, or perhaps when we should overlook a sin. But whatever the case, we can't settle for just being indifferent or having superficial relationships with other disciples of Jesus. We are called to take out the speck after we've repented and addressed the issues we have. And so it's a fair question to ask in that light, 
what kind of teacher will you be? Right? A teacher in that sense of someone who walks up or walks alongside others in following Jesus. The way we talk about our lives can teach others as well. So it doesn't have to be formal education. I don't have to say, hey, I'm going to mentor you. But just how do you present yourself? Do you, do you talk and rejoice in the grace of Christ? Or does the way you talk show that you value others thinking highly of you? Are you building yourself up and trying to make yourself look good? Do you speak humbly or proudly? You're teaching others by the way you speak. So we can do the hard, sometimes awkward work of trying to fellowship around the gospel, or we can only discuss what is superficial. We can ask for prayer and seek counsel, or we can present ourselves as if we have everything together and need nothing from anyone. What kind of teacher are you by the way that you conduct yourself in your relationships in the church? Christ instructs us all to be humble, repentant teachers, willing to acknowledge the log in our own eye. So that means that as we, as we teach each other, our posture should be first one of being forgiven sinners. Whenever we have to say something to someone, whatever we have to say, it should be born out of the conviction that God has showered us with his grace. We have received much love and much forgiveness from Christ. Secondly, we can interpret, I think, the log in our eye to include both sin and lack of knowledge. And so we need to learn from Christ before we teach. We don't teach as if we have independent expertise. In the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, we don't teach because we have lofty speech or wisdom. We teach what Christ has taught us by his Spirit. We teach to help others Trust not in our words, but in the power of the gospel. We teach the gospel. I think this is one of the remarkable things about Christ's kingdom, is that even the most immature but genuine Christian can be a help to others. Right When when our brother Tom was being baptized and he gave his testimony, weren't we all taught by our brother and encouraged by him? So if you know Christ... If you've repented of your sins and you're trusting him and you're seeking to follow Christ's commands, you are equipped to encourage your brothers and sisters in the church. By by simply following Christ, you are encouraging him. All of the pastors, I think, would admit that when we seek to help you with some spiritual problem or counsel or encourage you, we learn from you by your faithful following of Jesus. You teach us in the way that you seek to follow Jesus. According to Ephesians 4, the church builds itself up into the image of Christ as we all speak the truth in love to each other. So Jesus expects in those senses that we will all be teachers. We're all going to be setting examples to each other of repentance and faith. We're all seeking to obey Christ and help each other grow. So again, what kind of teacher are you? What would your children say? Do they see your repentance and your joy in the gospel? Do they see you seeking holiness? What about your spouse? Do your brothers and sisters in the church know you well enough to see the way that you're trying to take the log out of your own eye? Or can they see the speck in your eye? 
Do you know them well enough to see those things? What kind of teacher are you? We see Jesus raising the next question, how is your heart, in verses 43 through 45. Like before, it's related. What kind of teacher are you quickly gets to? Are you repenting and trusting Christ? So let's look at these next verses with that question in mind. How is my heart? Luke chapter 6, verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, his mouth speaks. So Jesus uses this kind of obvious, at least at first, uh, picture from nature, right? Trees and their fruit. And the punchline is verse 44. Each tree is known by its fruit. It almost seems to be hardly worth saying. But it is worth noting that Jesus is talking about identifying good and bad trees. Right? He's not just saying that apple trees bear apples. He's saying when we see goodness or rottenness in a piece of fruit, we, we should think, is the problem deeper than just the fruit? Is it connected to the tree? And as he's doing so, he's laying down stepping stones towards the bigger point. The next step is to go from trees to people. Not only are there good and bad trees, there are also good and evil people. So he says the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And likewise with the evil. So just like you can know a tree by its fruit, you can know a person's heart, their inner unseen nature by what they do. A person's heart is made visible by their actions. Our actions reveal our hearts. Now think back to the actions Jesus taught us about last week in last week's passage. What does it reveal when a person loves their enemies? When they're merciful to those who can't repay and who don't deserve it? In verse 35 of Luke 6, he said that when we love our enemies, we reveal that we are sons of God. Merciful actions reveal a heart of someone who has known the mercy of God. He's known that God is the God who's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. But what if the kind of love we have is simply that the kind that Jesus said sinners have, that transactional kind of love? Well, Jesus wants us to see our failure to have this supernatural kind of love reveals an unbelieving, sinful heart. Jesus is telling his disciples he's not merely concerned by external works. He's concerned about what our external works reveal about our character and our faith. But there's one more step that Jesus takes. We see that in the last part of verse 45. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So just like actions, our words reveal. Words are not just the product of our, our mouths and our vocal cords, but something deeper of our hearts. Our actions and our words reveal who we are. So how is your heart? A pastor named Brian Davis says this is his favorite question to ask when he's visiting church members. It's an attempt to kind of cut through, you know, how is your spiritual life? Are you doing your devotions? Those things are important. But how is your heart? 
Is there bitterness in your heart towards God or somebody else? Are you nurturing and protecting sin in your heart? Or are you heartbroken, perhaps by some chronic illness that just won't seem to ever get better, or a broken relationship? Are you heartbroken because of of grievous sin that you seem to keep falling into? Is your heart humble or proud? Is your heart generous or stingy? Are you encouraged in your heart? Have you had some fresh reminder of the Lord's grace and kindness to you through Jesus? What do your words and actions reveal about the treasure of your heart? Again, what would the people who are close to you say? It's so important for Jesus to ask us these questions because we naturally focus on the superficial and the external. So if Jesus preaches that we need to be more forgiving, we just think, all right, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to forgive. But as Jesus' teaching here in Luke 6 tells us, what it means to be a disciple is to look deeper than just the externals. Jesus didn't come to create a superficial kingdom, a kingdom full of citizens who are outwardly good but inwardly rotten. The kingdoms of the world were already like that, right? The Romans knew how to comply with the customs of Rome while each seeking their own interest. Jesus came to bring new life to spiritually dead people. As the counselor Paul Tripp would say, Jesus has no interest in stapling good fruit onto dead trees. The question, how is your heart, should push us back again to the gospel. Do you know the mercy of God in Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in the God who is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil? Am I relying on Christ for forgiveness of my sins? Am I trusting him for eternal life? There may be outward kinds of repentance that that need to go along with this probing questioning of your heart. What we do and say is important. But Jesus intends that our actions and our words should be the fruit of renewed hearts. It's a life that's rooted in faith of the gospel that Jesus wants. A whole life devoted to him, a life that bears fruit in love and good works. We see in other places in the New Testament that a disciple's good works and love are meant to make the invisible visible. So the wonder of God's transforming love in our hearts is displayed by our our words and deeds. Jesus says that it's by our love for each other that the world will know that we are Christ's disciples in John 13. And then Jesus says that it is by seeing our good works that people will glorify our Father in heaven. And so the question, how is your heart, does not circumvent accountability or repentance. It's an attempt to get to the root of the matter. A good way to spend part of this Lord's Day is to ask this question of yourself. How is my heart? And a good way to serve one another as we seek to build meaningful and deep relationships is to ask each other. Brother or sister, how is your heart? Encourage one another. Don't ask this as a gotcha question to expose someone, but as a way to to lead one another to the throne of grace. The next question Jesus asks builds on all that he said about the heart and all about words and deeds as well. You see, humans have a capacity 
for self-deception and hypocrisy that fruit trees do not have. Look at verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? I'm indebted to the commentator Joel Green for this observation. He said, how is it that human beings can be so inconsistent when it comes to the ways of God? Jesus has already told us that in the plant world, you don't gather grapes from the bramble bush or, or figs from the thorn bush. That's true for plants, but when it comes to people, there are some who will confidently say, I am a grapevine, and yet produce thorns. Right? It's possible to claim, Lord, Lord, to recognize the lordship of Jesus while rejecting his rule and not doing what he says. This was the state of many in Israel. They honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from God. Jesus wants us to understand that is not the way of the kingdom he's come to bring. And so Christ calls this great crowd around him, and he calls us as well to face this question. Are you a hypocrite? Are you saying that you follow Christ and yet rejecting his word and his rule over you? Hypocrisy is one of those things that everyone is against, right? Unbelievers in the world think hypocrisy is terrible, and they're happy to call it out among Christians when they see it. Nobody self-applies the label, I'm a hypocrite, right? And usually when we're hypocrites, our hypocrisy is somewhat selective. So for instance, we believe that we should love our neighbor, and we may genuinely think we are loving our neighbors, but in reality, our practice is to say, well, I love everyone but those neighbors, right? Those, I'm just not going to pretend, I'm going to pretend they're not there. Or we might say, I believe Jesus commands me to forgive others. I'm a forgiving person. But then we go on to list the ten reasons why this particular person does not deserve my forgiveness. Somehow it just happens to turn out that all the situations in my life are the exceptions to Jesus' rule. As I mentioned last week, we do need wisdom to apply Jesus' commands about love. Jesus' commands to love our enemies don't provide a complete ethical handbook for every situation that we'll face. But this need for wisdom is not a, a grounds for evading Jesus' command. Again, the commentator Joel Green says that disciples must embrace Jesus' topsy-turvy characterization of the world to be transformed in their dispositions and engage in the loving of enemies, the doing of good, and the lending without expectation of return. That is, in practices determined by the gracious character of God. That's what we must embrace. Lives marked by the gracious character of God. So that's the question. Are you a hypocrite? Does your life reflect the gracious character of God? Again, unbelievers like to hurl this accusation against Christian churches. But in doing so, they're not raising an issue that Jesus hasn't already raised, right? Jesus knows this will be a problem. I heard one pastor say that the difference between those inside the church and outside is that true Christians know that we are hypocrites and we're seeking to repent of our hypocrisy. So if we've been saved by Christ, we know the ways we've fallen short of Jesus' standard we know the ways that we continue to struggle and fall short. 
But, so Jesus does not raise this issue of hypocrisy in order to drive us away from his kingdom. It's a question that's meant to purify and refine us. By God's grace, even our hypocrisy can be covered and atoned for by the blood of Christ. The gospel enables us to face our hypocrisy, to confess it to God. Through the gospel, through faith in Jesus, hypocrites can be forgiven. If you're not a Christian, I wonder, are you able to wrestle with a question like, am I a hypocrite? Are there any ways that you fail to live up to your own values? And it's worth backing up a bit and ask, where did you get your values? When you think about things like human rights or justice for the poor and the oppressed, do you realize that those are fundamentally Christian ideas? The world would not have those values if not for the revolutionary teachings of Jesus. Do you recognize where your values came from? And do you always keep your values? We know that no one's perfect. But when you fail, what do you do with your failure? The gospel offers forgiveness of sins for hypocrites because Jesus died to pay the price our hypocrisy deserves. Hypocrisy deserves some kind of judgment, doesn't it? We can all agree on that. Christians believe it does, and that Jesus took that judgment for us. He was punished so we could be forgiven. Does your understanding of the world have any place for forgiveness? If you want to be forgiven by Christ, I hope you'll talk to one of the Christians around you or one of the pastors who's been up at the podium this morning. We'd love nothing more than to talk with you about how you can be forgiven when you fail to meet your standards or God's standards. The final question Jesus raises for us is, will your life withstand the storm? And we see this question raised in verses 47 through 49. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. So Jesus concludes his sermon with this parable about two men in their houses, two builders. One builds well, he digs down to the bedrock, and his house has a solid foundation, so when the flood comes and batters the house, the house still stands. The flood could not shake it. The other builder built with no foundation. And when the flood rose, Jesus says immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Sometimes we Houstonians get a visual image of this when you see one of those pictures of Galveston Island after the hurricane. And there's a few that have been built to modern code and they've got the right hurricane tie-downs and foundations and they're still there and everything else is just a pile of two-by-fours. Jesus wants us to see what it means to build and have your house withstand the judgment. These two builders in their houses are illustrations of two different kinds of followers of Jesus. The wise builder both hears Christ's words and does them. The foolish one hears Jesus' words, but does not do them. And this makes sense. Again, this large crowd around him, they've come to hear. 
and be healed, it says. They've heard Jesus' words, but will they do them? Now, this may sound like legalistic religion, right? Do these things and be saved. But we need to remember, what are Jesus' words in this sermon? Right? At the very least, we can, we can start there with just Luke chapter 6, you know, beginning of verse 20. Well, this sermon has been full of commands, but it's also been full of the gospel. The words of Christ about, has been about what it means to know God and to know his mercy by faith in Jesus Christ. So the one who hears Jesus' words and does them is the one who's received mercy and forgiveness from Christ. Right? Jesus has called us to be merciful because your Father in heaven is merciful. So the one who has heard Christ's words is the, the hungry person who found satisfaction in the promises of God. The one who has heard Christ's words and done them is the, the one who weeps now, but knows that one day he will laugh. By faith, these wise builders love their enemies and forgive them, forgive those who hurt them. It's those who have built on this foundation of Christ and his grace. Those are the ones who will stand when the flood comes. But what is this flood? The imagery of swift, great ruin is imagery of God's final judgment of mankind. It's similar to what we saw earlier with the blind leading the blind disciples into the pit. These are not accidental images and words, right? The flood is the deluge, like Noah's flood, but even worse. And so the final question of this passage is the ultimate question. Will your life withstand God's judgment? Will you stand on that day? Not in your own strength, but because your life is built on Christ. Or will you immediately fall and suffer the great ruin of eternal hell because you've disregarded Christ's words? Jesus began and concludes his sermon here in the same place with promises and warnings. Blessed are those who trust in Jesus and who are fully devoted to him. But woe to those who claim to know Jesus while living in unbelief. Jesus doesn't want the great crowds who've gathered to him to be deceived. He does not want us to be deceived. It is not enough to admire Jesus. It is not enough to claim Jesus with your mouth. On the final day, what is secret, the treasure of your heart, will be revealed. On the final day, everything will be laid open. So what will be revealed in your case? Has your heart been changed by the mercy and grace of God through Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sins? Have you trusted that Jesus' death paid their price? Or are you trusting in your own wisdom and works to save you? Are you living by your own rules? Have you determined to live according to your own definition of love and reject Christ? Here is Jesus' warning. If you continue on that path, perhaps even acknowledging Jesus in some ways, but disobeying him and not trusting him, you're headed for a great fall. You may say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, I used to enjoy listening to you. 
But he will say, depart from me, all you workers of evil. So hear Jesus' warning and repent of your sins. Here is the promise. If you trust him, he will save you. On the day of judgment, you will stand if you stand in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge we need your help. We need you to open our eyes to the truth of Christ and to keep our eyes fixed on him. We need your word every day. We need the gospel every day. We need help to fight against pride and to humbly admit when we've been wrong or mistaken. We need the help of each other to hold fast to Christ. We need encouragement and warning. We need brothers and sisters to, to teach us and encourage us to keep going. So we pray that we will hear the words of Jesus. We pray that we will not be deceived about what it means to follow him. And I pray for those here who have not yet to come to faith in Jesus, that you will use Christ's words this morning to wake them up, to give them sight, and to bring them to the saving knowledge of Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.